Our reading today is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And in the Bibles, under the seats, it's on page 959. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City Church. And um, we, uh, you know, sometimes we get asked, you know, what, what, what's Free City Church like um, when we meet people? And I'm like, oh, it's awesome, um, obviously. But uh, we, we go straight to mission statement. Uh, where we just say, you know, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through the power of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And so everything we do wants to be an expression to grow people from unbelief uh, into belief, um, to grow people um, into security of their faith, like a certainty of what God is like and a certainty of what God thinks about them and a certainty that I can trust God. Like, like his plans for me are not evil. I, I, I can trust him. And that, that's, that's discipleship. And so discipleship happens here on a lot of different levels. We usually describe Free City on three different levels. And so one is the, the Sunday gathering where we come together, where we proclaim truths through song, uh, through just reading the scriptures, through confession, and then through the teaching of the scriptures, where uh, we typically just work through books of the Bible. Um, we are starting a series on First John that we call First John, um, and so we're going to be here a while. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a mode of discipleship. But then beneath that is uh, our main mode of discipleship, uh, that is city groups. And so city groups are uh, small groups of people who share a meal together during the week and then open up the scriptures to walk through the text that was preached. It's not, it shouldn't be, and so if this is your city group, you need to go back and rebuke them. It should not be like, Man, this is what the sermon was like. I mean, sometimes you can clean something from that, but it should be answering questions uh, about the text and making application. Like we want, we want Jesus to be center, and Jesus is revealed to us primarily through the scriptures um, and through the gifts that He gives by the Holy Spirit to the body. Um, and then the, the the lower level that we'd like to talk about is uh, what we call life transformation groups, and that that's accountability, that's friendship. That's uh, me meeting with, you know, one or two other guys, uh, confessing my sins, accountability to fight sin, accountability to, to read the Bible. Like, are you reading the scriptures? What are you learning? And then the third strand would be accountability for whatever's necessary. Like, just literally whatever is necessary. Like, if you're struggling with a certain kind of sin, let's be brothers and let's be sisters. Let's level one and let's band arms together and let's say, hey, listen, this is a table of grace. Like, you can come here with anything, but there's a sternness to this table. I'm not going to let you not fight. I'm not going to let you give up. Um, and that's where, um, that's where, like, you have to be fully known. Like, someone needs to know your sin struggles. I need men in my life to know where my sin struggles, where my disbelief, what my marriage is like, what my family is like, where I'm excelling and where I'm not. Like, you never get above the need of the ministry of the church. And so, you know, just for the next several weeks, or we don't know exactly how long we'll be here, um, just kind of a helpful thought. If you get here early, like the six of you that get here early... Um, we love you with a dying love. Uh, but we, we need you to move to the front and, uh, like, to the middle and to the outsides. Uh, you know, I mean, like, when we have people coming late, and that's the rest of you, all of you, 
uh, the, when you're standing, it looks like there's nothing. And we, I know we don't have a lot of seats, and we're going to deal with that. If we have to open up the back doors and put seats out there, we will. But there are seats. I was just telling people, I'm like, hey, man, there's seats. You're just going to have to throw elbows. You know, you're just going to have to be mean. It's all right. The gospel forgives. Um, and so help us out. And I know it's hard because you're like, no, no, no. This is where Jesus wants me to sit. That's not true. Jesus didn't care about that seat. Um, and so work with that. Um, we are starting first John and like, I want to just address some things that first John is going to talk to us. It's going to acknowledge some truth. Like life is hard. Like it's hard. The battle against sin persists. There's moments that you thought you might be done with a, a, a certain temptation, a certain difficulty, and you're not. It persists. Relationships are fractured. Accusations sting and they take root. People that you looked up to in the faith, leaders in the faith, walk away. They, they deny the faith and, and they walk away. Like life is tough. Disappointments in life can mount and mount until your faith starts to feel brittle and weak and thin. Like when it talks about it, it seems like so much at times seems to be against you. And you start to wonder, can anyone have stability to stand? Like when we, when we step into what the Apostle John is going to teach us, a church that he really, really loves, that he wants to encourage, like they have questions like us. Like, have you ever wondered questions like, is there a life that isn't cloaked in shadows and deception? If there's a way to stand against doubt, if there's a way to be confident that you are really truly, finally, forever forgiven and in the household of God. Can you ever feel that? Like if that's you, like if you've ever had questions of anything like this, you need the message that John gives us in 1 John. You need to be reintroduced to the historical person of Jesus who lived who died and rose again. Like in just a minute, when we start to unpack this, what you're going to see is the very first thing that John does is he doesn't provide any new information. He doesn't give any new information of like, oh man, you guys are struggling with doubt. That's because you haven't learned this yet. And like he unveils some new information that was hidden on the back shelf. He doesn't give anything new. He starts off with this. You need to be reintroduced to Jesus. You have forgotten who Jesus was. You have forgotten what he's like. You have forgotten what he thinks about you. You need to relearn Jesus. And he's going to go on this book and he's going to make these incredible claims. He's going to say, knowing the real Jesus gives a light in a dark and uncertain world. He's going to say, church, knowing the real Jesus gives love that conquers all fears. He's going to say, knowing the real Jesus produces a life of certainty. He's going to say all kinds of things that we desperately need. Yeah, you know, I always get really excited this time of year because, you know, fall starts happening and uh, it starts to get cooler. Uh, leaves start to change. It starts to get beautiful. You can wear flannel and that's important to me. Um, and so, you know, all these things start to happen. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a great time of year. Baseball games matter. For six months, they haven't mattered at all. They start to matter. You know, college football begins and I mean, I, I love that. Like our TV actually gets used in the fall. College football begins, you know, the Dr. Pepper fansville. I mean, they are killing it. Like this is the season. Pumpkin spice gets into everything, everything. Like that salesman, he is killing it. I mean, he, he's incredible at his job. He's like, what you got over there? Cheerios? We'll make it pumpkin spice Cheerios. We'll go 50-50. What, 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 what do you have? Okay, you got, you got bagels? Pumpkin spice bagels. The sorority girls will love them, you know? And, and we buy them. I saw, I kid you not, pumpkin spice spam. Uh, you haven't tried it. You don't know. I bet none of you guys have even tried spam, you know? I mean, but I mean, I, I didn't buy it. I'm just saying that, that salesman. Gosh, man, take your trophy and go home, you know? And so, I mean, it is getting into everything. It is no longer just for pie. 
we have baseball, we have college football, we have pumpkin spice, and we get to start a new series. And we are starting First John, which I already told you we are calling it First John. It is truly like the happiest of times. In, um, in college football, they have a thing called a scene setter. And so if you watch like a game day, and so the, the, the scene setter is they talk about the different programs. And so they, they talk about the home team and the away team. And they talk about the past successes and the heritage that they have. And they, they build it up. You know, who were the coaches? Who are the coaches? And then the music changes. And it talks about the, the adversity that, that, that has come upon this team and the difficulties that they're facing right now. And then it gets even darker. And it looks forward to the competition that's awaiting them on the field. Like, that's what the scene setter does. It moves to this, like, man, this is my team. Like, it's always going to be my team. And then it brings up all the junk that's happened with your team. You're like, oh, my gosh, we could be in trouble. And then it talks about what you're about to do. And then you're like, man, what happens next? And the answer of what happens next is Lee Corso puts on the wrong helmet. I mean, that's what happens next. Game day humor. Okay. And so, but, you know, when we start... Um, a series like First John or really any new book, we, we need a little bit of a scene setter. Like we need a little bit of like what is drawing us in, what is going on. And so in, in starting this, before I tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. If you haven't been around, I do that. That's what I do. Um, but before we do that, like I want you to know a little bit about these, these little churches in and outside of Ephesus. These home churches, small bodies of believers banding together who looked to the Apostle John because he was like the, the grandfather pastor to them. And they were experiencing difficulty. Numbers of them were walking away from the faith. Leaders among them were denying the body, the bodily person of Jesus Christ saying, is it really that important? It was devastating. And so the Apostle Paul, he writes a, a letter, but it's really more like a, a, a sermon. You know, at times it, 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 when we look at it, it's going to feel like it, it's kind of scattered. But yet we have these three themes that keep coming back into play. These themes of, of life, real life. These themes of love, a love that conquers all fear. A love that, that changes everything. And then a light that can come through the clarity of the lens when we see who Jesus is. And so th there's a lot of debate about, you know, uh, who wrote uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, the early church had no debate at all. Um, they, they saw it as, G uh, you know, the guy, that youngest disciple, John, who was with Jesus, who was called his beloved he, I mean, his nicknames, he was James's brother, the youngest one, um, you know, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, the one whom Jesus loved. You know, James and John, they left a really successful family fishing business to follow after Jesus. He was called the beloved, the one whom Jesus loved, the apostle of love, the elder and the evangelist. Like he had a ton of nicknames, which means he was like the coolest. And he went from sons of thunder to apostle of love, like something happened. And the answer is he met Jesus and it changed him. He met Jesus and it changed him. You know, I, I don't see any debate. If we ask like who wrote it, I don't see any debate. Like the language and the themes between the gospel of John, first, second, and third John are almost identical. You know, in second, in second John and third John, he, he describes himself as the elder. That was one of his nicknames because he was the oldest guy. You know, history shows that he probably lived church history into his 80s or 90s. And so like at an 85-year-old guy, he's known as the apostle of love. How many 85-year-old people do you know that aren't bitter? You know, church history, Irenaeus, he says that, you know, in the end of his life, John, he lost the ability to speak. Uh, he lost so many words, but he would just constantly say, Jesus is love. Love one another. Sons of thunder. You don't get a nickname like that by being meek. You know, I, nicknames, you can't give yourself nicknames. If you've given yourself a nickname, shame on you. That's not how they work. 
Nicknames are bestowed upon you by the people closest to you who witness you do something or a characteristic in your life, and they have to remind you of that. Uh, my, my wife, she carries a couple nicknames. Um, one is Tina. I've never heard her uncle call her anything. My wife's name is Kinsey. I've never heard, not Tina. I've never heard her uncle call her anything other than Tina. And it's because when she was a little girl, they would ask her, hey, Kinsey, what's your name? And she'd be like, Tina. And say like, no, it's not Tina. And she'd be like, no, no. And so they would help her. They would say, all right, say Ken. And she was like, Ken. And they're like, all right, now say Z. And she'd be like, Z. Now say Ken Z. Tina. I mean, so he loved it. And so he calls her Tina. I've never heard her call her anything else. I've never heard her brother call her anything but Tootsie. And so that was from another generation. Her nephew couldn't say Kinsey, but called her Tootsie and it stuck. You know, I just don't feel like I can do that. I'm not really in on that. You know what I mean? But nicknames are things that are bestowed upon you. Liv, um, our second born, she has a lot of nicknames. And so her name's Olivia. We've always called her Liv. That turned to Livy. That turned to Livy Lou. That turned to Livy Lulu. That became Lulu or Lou. And then she had an experience with crutches that she loved. She had to use crutches and she loved it. And then it became Limpy Lou because she loved it. And so we, we experience something with them, a characteristic, and it gets bestowed upon you. I, I, this is really unrelated, but... I just, um, I just met a guy, his friend's my brother-in-law. His name is Zeth, uh, Z-E-T-H. I'm like, man, that's an interesting name. You probably have some really cool nicknames. And I asked him that, and he said, well, I mean, when I was playing football, people called me Zethers. Lame. I was like, no one has called you, ever called you Zethamphetamine? No one? And he's like, no. I'm like, I, it'd be great. Like, I, I'm hooked on Zeth. I can't get off him. Uh, uh, Zethamphetamine. Okay. When we look at this, why is it important that it was written by the Apostle John? And the answer is because of who he was and where he was positioned through Jesus. The the Apostle John is the one who was leaning his head on Jesus' shoulder during the Last Supper. The Apostle John was when Jesus had, during the Last Supper, had just said, one of you is going to betray me. You know, Peter was like, hey, which one? And Jesus really didn't answer him. So he asked John, you ask him, because I think Jesus will answer you because you're the beloved, the one he loves. And he answered him. He said, it's going to be the guy that dips that hand his bread to. The Apostle John is the one that had a front row seat during the, the, you know, the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus met uh, with Moses and Elijah. In Mark 5, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, not everyone could fit in the room, but you had Peter, James, and John. I mean, over and over, even John 19, you know, the only disciple that is mentioned at the foot of the cross is John. John, three Marys, and, and, and another lady. Like, it's John. Over and over. Son of Thunder being transformed to the Apostle of Love had front row seats to what Jesus was doing, so close that he could touch. And then he had backroom access to get more teaching to understand. And this is the John who wants to remind us of who Jesus was. He always got in. You know, if Jesus got an Uber and it showed up and it was a Prius, Peter, James, and John got in, everyone else had to take the donkey. He always got in. It was written by John. You know, who, who did he write to? He wrote to a discouraged church who needed faith. Like it was probably written to several smaller house churches in and around Ephesus. But it was, it was a church that saw people whom they looked up to walking away from faith. Like, can you not relate to that? Can you not relate to like you in your family? Like there was a time that your, your dad like led the charge to go to church and he led the charge of that. And then he led the charge to leave your family. What do I do with my faith with that? Or, or I, I had a group of friends and, and we were Christians and we were trying to hold each other accountable and everyone gave up. Everyone walked away. Like, it's a discouraged church that is wondering if they're going to make it. You know, and then the 
the last thing, just as we get into this, is just to say, why is it important? Why is this message important? And it's important because Jesus, because John is trying to clarify the facts about Jesus. He's trying to clarify the, the facts about Jesus. And we live in a culture that looks at the Bible and is like, man, do the facts really matter? You know, can't we just kind of, it's about what you do. It's not about what you believe. Like, let's just take the things that say, be nice and be a good person. Do the facts really matter? Does it really matter that this is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity that put on flesh, that lived among us, that never sinned, that was born of a virgin and died upon a cross and rose again? Do we have to hang on to that? Does that really matter? Can't we just go by the teachings? And John would say it absolutely matters. You see, he was dealing with um, a heresy called Gnosticism, which was denying the humanity of Jesus, where we want to deny the, the godship of Jesus, of like, well, he's probably just a good dude who taught us some good things we need to know. They were denying the humanity of Jesus. But what the scriptures are going to be really, really plain, we need both sides of Jesus. And so he was going to clarify like, he's going to clarify who this Jesus is. So what does John do um, in First John? He reintroduces this weary church, this battle-ridden church. He reintroduces them to the Jesus that he saw, that he heard, that he touched. He says, you need to look back to Jesus. He reminds them of what he heard from Jesus. He reminds him of what he saw in Jesus' life. He reminded him that he was close enough to touch Jesus, to examine him. And so John is saying that the cure to our disillusionment is to remind it of the real, historical Jesus of Nazareth, who was God incarnate, who came to tell us the good news about the kingdom of God, who was himself the good news about the kingdom of God. He wants to remind us of this Jesus who lived, who died, and who rose again. And he's going to say, listen, seeing this Jesus is the key to your disillusionment and fear. Knowing this Jesus will bring a connectedness, a certainness, a certainty, and a joy. And in one way, like a father, He's probably in his 80s, 90s when he's writing this, like a father looking at, at, at his church, saying, I want you to remember what you have in the family of God. You're in it, but you're forgetting what you have. You're forgetting what you're a part of, and I want you to remember what you have. And so a lot of commentaries talk about, you know, First John as assurance. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? And it, it certainly is that. But more than that, there's all these moments where he says, little children, little children, remember this. He's trying to remind, you are a part of the family of God, and all of its benefits and all of its accesses are before you. You're not tapping into it. Look to Jesus. So for the next um, fall, uh, we will be looking at this uh, with pumpkin spice lattes in our hand. And um, we're going to be trying to answer these questions. But let me organize this morning for you. And it's going to go pretty quick. This morning, we're going to really just two questions. He is going to clarify what the gospel message is. And we're going to really look to three words that are absolutely essential for the gospel message to be real. And if they don't exist in your gospel message, you don't know what the gospel is. And so he's going to look at it. What is the gospel message? He's going to explain it to us. And then he's going to do this. He's going to answer the question, what does the gospel do? And it's incredible good news. What is the gospel? What does it do for me? Why is it important? It's incredible good news. Let me pray for us and we will hop in and knock this out. Um, Father, Lord, I pray that you would bring great clarity uh, to what the gospel is. And Lord, we would be encouraged and reinforced. Uh, for some of us, faith would be born for the first time. For others, it would be born again in our heart. We'd be reminded of what's true. We're reminded that we don't stand alone, but we stand in the legacy of God's family growing and struggling, but finding true joy. And then, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with what does the gospel do in us and give us access to? What does it do? Uh, Father, wherever you need to work, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be empowered and would be bold and would confront sin and attitudes and would build up and encourage. Um, and so, Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
So first question, <clears throat> what is the gospel message? And let me tell it to you, and then we're going to read it. The gospel is the proclamation, um, and so you're going to see that word, of the eternal God from the beginning. You're going to see that word, proclamation, beginning. The gospel is the proclamation of the eternal God from the beginning who has appeared to us. The word is manifest, been made manifest in the person of Jesus. And so listen to these words in verses 1 through 3. He says, that which was from the beginning... And so he is tapping into a, a long line here. This is his opening of, of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it jumps down to verse 14 where it says, listen, it's been manifested, and his name is Jesus. And so it starts off, as like, this is the eternal God from the beginning. And so that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. The word of life, the message that brings life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you may have fellowship with us. And so when we look at this, the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is God who put on flesh to live among us, to provide us a way back to God, giving us eternal life with God. The three words that we really want to wrestle with are, are these, proclaim, beginning, and made manifest. And, and so the first, proclaim, the, the gospel is a proclamation about what has happened. It's not an ideology to live by. It's not like rules to govern your life decision. It's not even an example to follow. It is a proclamation. It is a telling of what happened. It is a historical event that we're saying changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It was witnessed in history, and that's what he's doing. He's coming to give testimony about it. Matter of fact, that word at the end or the middle of verse 2, it says, testify to it. It's the word martyr. It's where we get the word like a martyr's death. Someone who witnessed something and it had so profound they're willing to die for it. I can't deny what I saw. And so the gospel is a proclamation about what has happened. And so the question is, what, what, what happened? And that's where we bring these two other words, beginning and, and manifest. And we don't use that word manifest, but I think we should try to use it this week. Um, just work on it. And so, but beginning and, and manifest. And so the gospel message is that the eternal God from the beginning has appeared among us. That's what manifestation is. It's appeared among us. It dwelt among us. In verses uh, 1 and 2, like you see, it says, that which was from the beginning... That should tie us right into the gospel of John. That which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen, we look upon, we have touched. It's concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. You know, when the word of life and beginning, you could ask like, what is, what is this all about? You know, when it says concerning the, the word of life, it's about a reality that brings life. It is about a message that brings life. And it's been the same message from the very, very beginning. The writing of the New Testament didn't happen and the death of Jesus didn't happen because God was searching for thousands of years for a plan B to fix the mess that we made. From the beginning, from eternity's past, we looked, he looked forward and he said, listen, we are going to display something beautiful, this reconciliation that can only happen through a substitutionary atonement where we absorb the wrath of sin, the message of life. This message of life made manifest. Like the life-giving message, like it, it's weirdly interactive. Like, like look at what it says. Like it says heard. It says we heard it. And that's, that's not real weird. You can hear a lot of message. John heard the word of life. It also says John saw it. And although like not time appropriate, maybe it was texted to him, maybe it could be something else. But John saw this message of life. And then it says, John touched it. Like, this is a little more weird, but it's not too crazy. 
you know, if you were trying to, trying to make it something else, but he says, man, it's something that I touch. But the word that he uses is where we get the idea of like braille. The, the, the word that he uses is a word that like enters in that, that, that you would use to describe a blind man trying to figure out what's before him, touching it all over, not leaving anything left untouched. And so what he's saying is, man, this message that we, we heard it, we saw it, but we explored it. We examined it. There was nothing left untouched. And then it says in verse 2, that life appeared. It was made manifest. Like, do you see how this is mounting? The eternal word of life entered time and manifested in humanity. It appeared among us. The eternal word became flesh and presented himself to people's hearing, seeing, and touching. Like, it's not enough just to hear the prophets heard God. It's not enough just to see. I mean, they got to see God in, in, in a way no one else did. But, like, there were, I mean, there was burning bushes, and there were clouds that, that were holy, and that kind of pushed everything out, and there were storms, and there were moments that God showed up, and it was undeniable. But this is altogether different. This was a touchable reality that was lived among, that was questioned and asked and pressed against. It was touchable. You know, the, the word touch, I mentioned just a, a little bit. It, it comes from a Greek word. It's used to describe how blind men closely examine something. And so Paul is trying to encourage a young church that is discouraged to say, listen, I was there. I touched him. He was real, but I examined him. And I want to tell you everything I know about him. And so as this is building, like these words, like if we're just going to say this really plainly, the gospel is a message about something that had happened. It's in our past. It's recorded about. And what happened was the eternal son of God entered humanity, put on flesh, lived among us so that we could know what God is like. You see, he brought a message of life, but he himself was also the message of life. He didn't just deliver it. Life was contained within him, the life that we need. And so this was before him. That is the gospel message. He lived, he died a substitutionary atonement, and then he bodily resurrected, giving us hope to have how we can defeat sin. And so when John sees their discouragement, he says, I have to remind you of the proclamation of the gospel, of what I experienced, of what happened. And he does it in a really incredible way. Like, if you look at this, verses 1 through 3, it's a really complicated sentence. Like, in high school, your English teacher, my English teacher, Mrs. Smith, and then her twin sister, Mrs. Smith, it was really confusing. I had both of them. They would have deducted points from Paul because he has this, like, crazy, complicated run-on sentence. You know, normally in English, this is how sentence works. You have a subject, so like, Casey, I'm the subject. And then you have a verb or verbal clause is preaching. And so that's the verb, subject, verb. And then you have this thing of a direct object or an object receiving. And so Casey is preaching to you. What, what, what he does is he starts off with all these parallel objects, all these parallel phrases describing what the message is, describing the important part of it that runs on for three verses till he gets to one main verb. We proclaim. And then it goes really fast to you. Like, like if you look at that, look, look, look at it. So verse one, that which was from the beginning, parallel phrase, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was from the father and was made manifest to you. And so it's almost like all these modifying parallel clauses. He's really trying to build this up. There's no main verb yet. And then he's like, oh man, I am in pretty deep. I have written myself into a corner here. I've got to clarify. So he summarizes it again. Look at verse three. He says, that which we have seen and heard. That's all summarizing what he just spent like, I don't know, 30 words trying to write or more. A less cool summary of verse one and two. And then it says, we proclaim to you. And you know, I think the emphasis is important because he's saying, hey, what saves you is not just the proclamation. 
it's what we're proclaiming. And we're proclaiming something that was, you know, from the beginning that entered our world that we have seen, looked and touched. And it's all about life. It's all about life. It even says eternal life. Like we're trying to figure this all about life. It was made manifest among us. And so the first thing, like, is just what is the gospel? The gospel is a proclamation about the eternal Son of God who was manifested in humanity for us to see, hear, and touch so that we could know real life. Have you heard that before? Do you trust that? Or have you turned Christianity to something like, well, I I need to be just a little bit more happier and what I'm doing is not working. And, you know, I mean, I want to be a good person, so I should probably follow some of these things. That's not what Paul's reminding, sorry, John. That's not what John is reminding us of. He's talking about an event that happened that changed everything. So the first thing is, what is the gospel? The second is, what does the gospel do? And man, really plainly, he tells us it does two incredible things for us. And so one is it puts us into a family with God and with one another. And so we see the word fellowship twice. And then we see something that theologians really wrestle with. I mean, I read four different commentaries, and they really wrestle with what they call complete joy. Joy complete. And so he says the gospel comes in and it makes a fellowship, a new family, and it brings this joy complete. And so if I'm putting it in a sentence, the gospel makes a supernatural joy that grows in completion in a certain kind of fellowship. And so let's just read it. So look at verse three. I know we're jumping and you know, we're doing three again. It says, that which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim also to you. And so we summarize the first two sentences. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so, like, real plainly, He says, hey, I'm writing this so that you can have joy. And in the, in the Greek, it just says joy complete. Joy to the full. Joy total. Like, joy done. And like that's incredible. Every commentary that, that, that I look at, that I read, like they don't exactly know what to do with this. Like John is writing this letter to increase his joy and to increase our joy. You know, earlier when he talked about, man, we saw him, we touched him, he was talking. It wasn't the editorial we where you just, you don't want to sound like you're the only one who believes this. So you say, well, we did this. It wasn't that. He was talking about the apostles. He's talking about the disciples. There was a band of people that actually walked with Jesus and touched him. And so it's apostolic authority. Like, I was there. I saw him. I was with him. I saw him die. I saw him rose again. I saw him. But when it comes to this we, I think he's talking about us we. I think he's talking about this new family, this new fellowship this new thing that we get into, it's called the family of God, that our older brother, Jesus, you see, Jesus is the only son of God, and he had all the inheritance of heaven, and he left that to come to earth to reclaim us, to draw us back into the family of God because we walked away. And so in essence, he took his inheritance and he broke it up so that we could get in, and he's distributing it to people who will trust Jesus, who will love Jesus who will believe Jesus. And so he's saying, listen, this is about our joy. This is about your joy. This is about my joy. This is about joy of all believers everywhere. He's inviting us in, and he's saying, this supernatural joy is described by two words, joy complete. (laughs) It sounds pretty awesome. You know, every commentary when they talk about it, like, man, that's, that's kind of crazy. I mean, this is talking about a joy that will be completed in heaven, you know, in the new heaven and new earth. And we can get more of it now, but, you know, it's, it's coming later. And, and I, I agree. Like, I, I think that's true. But I think he's talking about a completion of joy that can grow right now. I think he's talking about a reservoir that we can stumble up across that is strong enough to be present in all of life's circumstances. And so if you have a basement and you live in Lawrence, that's been bad. 
very bad for you. Because what we find out is, you know, as, as rain comes down, what you find out is it also comes up. You know, I mean, it comes up, and so if you have a basement, a lot of basements have been flooding, and you're like, oh, this is great, grass is green, and I am broke, okay? And so, like, you find that, but what's happening is there's water beneath us. I don't know know if you knew that. You need to know that. There's water beneath us, and when the rain comes down, it also rises up. A subterranean source of water wells up. I think it's actually a pretty good picture of what the gospel does. It brings a joy inside that wells up. It's available to us when everything in life is dry and barren. We just have to dig a little deeper. And sometimes when the afflictions of life press down upon us, it wells up in our life. And so this is not the denial of like, you know, my... my brother-in-law died. My brother-in-law didn't die, but if he died, my brother-in-law died. And now, you know, shucks, you know, I mean, but I'm still happy. It's not denial of facts. It's a deeper drawing into where you can actually feel pain and sorrow and difficulty and stress deeper, but with an assurance that God is the God who has foreseen all things Held nothing back from you. This is Romans 8. He didn't even withhold his son. So what is he going to withhold from you now? An assurance that can well up. A joy that is not diminished when the the waves of life batter against you. A joy that can bubble up through life as it beats you down. A joy that can exist in sorrow, suffering, disappointment, and loss. It's not absent from them. It persists through them. And sometimes, actually, I'm going to say it differently. You will never know the true beauty and magnitude and weight of that joy until God takes you to a place where all the surface joys are kind of gone. And all the apostles are going to say, it's worth it. And so he talks about this joy complete the gospel brings joy. And then he says, but that joy grows in a family, in a fellowship. And so what does the gospel give? It gives a supernatural joy that can well up in your life through all kinds of discouragement, all kinds of difficulty. And we get it by focusing on the person of Jesus. Who is God? What is he like? What has he promised me? What has he not promised me? What does he say about me? I know what I say about me. I know what other people have said about me. What does he say about me? And he says this grows in fellowship. Look at verse 3 again. That which you have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And then he describes his fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then verse 4 again, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete And so he's talking about a joy that is fuller when it's shared. And this is nothing new to us. All joys are fuller when they're shared. Good meals are good by yourself. And like right now, if you're like, man, I just wish I could eat a meal with no one talking to me, no one touching me, no one around, you're a mom and you have small kids and that will pass. You know, I mean, so, I mean, but good meals that you take joy in are better when they're shared in fellowship. Comedies are better when they're shared in fellowship. Vacations are better when they're shared in fellowship. Everything that brings joy, it's better when it's shared in a certain kind of fellowship. And this actually combats something, a Christianity that our culture is trying to preach. You know, in our culture, this is why this, this message is so important to us. They deny Jesus from the other way. You know, we deny Jesus like, man, you know, I, you know, him being God, born of a virgin, God entering humanity, that's crazy. Let's just follow what he says. What really matters is what you do. It doesn't really matter what you believe, but the, the product of your life, that you're a pretty good person. And that is not Christianity. 
You see, that, that, that's what we say. And then we, we say this. Our culture says, man, Christianity is kind of controversial. You know, you got Jesus. It's controversial like gluten. Like, we got to avoid that too. I mean, by the way, we never talk about it, but we have gluten-free crackers for people who need that. We love you. Jesus loves you. He is the bread of life. I don't know what that means for you. Um, and so, but, I mean, he's controversial and so what happens is we say, oh, it's a private matter. Don't, don't share it. It's a private matter. It's, don't share it. And what John is going to say to you is you cannot have this joy complete with just you, God, Bible, and a bag of chips. You can't have it. It's meant to be in a community of believers that are looking to Jesus who have shared the deepest thing all in common. I found that there was nothing I could do with my sin until I found Jesus, and he said he would do something with my sin. The deepest thing about me, a common bond, a struggle of relationships that have walked away, a struggle of being disappointed time and time again, a struggle of wrestling with things on the outside of me and things on the inside of me, but a common hope in Jesus. He says that joy is shared in a family, and we call that family a fellowship. And it's not just with us. It's a fellowship with God the Father and his Son. It's a fellowship with a Trinitarian God that he didn't have to include you in, but he did. What is the gospel? The gospel is a proclamation of what, something that has happened. God entered humanity to save humanity from sin, Satan, and death. God died as a substitutionary atonement for you. God rose again in a bodily resurrection foretelling what can happen in us also. What does the gospel do? It can introduce you to a joy that can find completion, a joy that can sustain through a lot of troubles and difficulties persistent subterranean source of joy but it invites you into a family the family of god you know the gospel is um this is so different from every other religion in the world christianity is the only religion in all the religions of the world that can give you absolute assurance not not assurance that doesn't like have waver with some doubt but absolute assurance of where you stand with god every other religion says you are saved by your life so that means you can't really be sure that you're safe until your life is done I mean, who knows how you might end or what might happen, that you might have some sort of difficulty that causes you to renounce everything or some really horrible sin that you can't undo. Like every ever the religion says, man, do good, and hopefully that good will, it'll, it'll well up and it'll be enough. Christianity doesn't say you are saved by your life. Christianity says you are saved by Jesus' life. That is what John is reminding them. I heard Jesus. I saw his life. I touched him before his death, and I touched him after his resurrection. I examined him like a blind man would examine something he wasn't familiar with. I examined him all over. God manifested among us in the person of Jesus, and by his death and resurrection, you can be sure that you are saved. It is not by your life. It is by his life given to you. Christianity points to what Jesus has done and says what he accomplished can be applied to you. Do you have that? Everything in communion points to that. The word of life gave his life away upon the cross so that you could have his. Christian, hear the intention of God for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the invitation to the table. Everything in communion points to a bodily Jesus that you could have touched. It was broken for you. Everything points at the table to his blood that you could have touched. It was spilled for you. 
the way we take communion is we start on the bread side and we we tear a piece of bread away and we dip it either into wine or grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice is in the glassware, and it points to this great gospel that we get included, this family that we get included into. And what it does, what I hope it does for you, what it does for me, is it builds faith. I'm invited to the family table of God, not because of what I did, because of what Jesus did. I get let in. I know there are so many doors that have been closed upon you and you can't get in. You don't have the pedigree, you don't have the intelligence, you don't have the work ethic, you don't have the friend structure, you don't have so many things, whatever it is, you're not let in. This door is open because Jesus had it all. If you're a Christian, we ask you to join us in communion to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, to remember, to build faith. If you're not a Christian, you're just kind of trying to figure this thing out, we'll have some verses and prayers up on the screen just kind of guide you. You won't stand out. It's crazy. It's chaotic. This room is not set up. They didn't think about how to take communion when they built this room, and so it's not set up well. And so listen, let me just help you. Um, It's going to be difficult. We come down as you're facing. We come down on the right side of the aisle, and then when you turn around, we go back on the right side of the aisle. It's like how you drive in America. It's right side. Um, You're going to have to use your elbows to make room. Be a Christian how you do it. Be kind. But we remember, you're invited to the family table of God because if you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, um, it's probably even fitting that communion is chaotic for us because life is chaotic. Life is hard. Disappointments mount. We suffer and we grind. There's a limitation that happens in our life and sorrow. And you promise a joy complete that can abound. And Lord, I'm sorry because we label those things that which that joy is not. And we diminish its beauty all the time. But Lord, I pray that there would be a welling. I pray that there would be an assurance rising up that I just go through the checklist. Do I believe this about Jesus? Do I trust his intentions for me? If it is, I'm in the family of God. And so even if I have baggage, I can bring it to the table. And Father, we find more faith. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.